Let's go to Matthew chapter 5. We've been looking at some clear commands of the Lord. In the Greek, it's called the imperative mood, which means it's a command. And we're on uh, the third one in a chronological order. There was a couple of commands that Jesus gave before he began his public ministry, but we're looking at those that he said in his public ministry. And the first was found there in chapter 4 and verse 17, where he said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And Mark says in his recording of that, repent and believe the gospel. And then just two verses later, both here in Matthew and in Mark, he gives a second command and he says, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. With those two things, there's going to become a conflict between the child of God who's fishing for men, who's identified with Christ, and the world. And so the next command that falls in line logically and, and falls in line chronologically is there in verse 12 of Matthew chapter 5, where Jesus says, rejoice. And so we are commanded to rejoice. <laughs> uh, not suggested or encouraged. Rejoice and be exceeding glad. But let's back up and see what it's talking about. And verse 11, blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute you and say all manner of evil against you falsely. So you've went to work you find out that people are talking bad about you. It's false what they're saying. They exclude you from their fellowship. They flatten your tires before you leave for home. They mock you. And he says, when that happens, and it's for the sake of the Lord, for my sake, there in verse 11, rejoice and be exceedingly glad. In heaven, for so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. And so as we've done in the past, we're going to just take a look at the wording and then take a look at some scriptures in relationship to that, and then look at the crisis, the decision that it brings to our lives. And uh, I'm already thinking about changing lessons because uh, there's 49 of these 
and every one of them so far has been <laughs> convicting. It, it's bringing me to a crisis point. And that's what the Lord intended to do. That we could be changed and for the better. And so when it says rejoice, it's just plain English. Be happy. It's a state of happiness. In one of the writings in the original language, I don't think it was the Bible, but it's usually described of a little lamb skipping around for joy. The other day I took my uh, puppy to um, walk out on the dike, and usually I keep her on a, on a cord and uh, don't let her get too far away. But I was out in the dike, and she could only run in the dike and on the other side of the dike in the floodplain. And so I took her off the cord. And uh, when she's on the cord, she just pushes, she just pulls, pulls, pulls. When she got off the cord, uh, she looked back, make sure I was there, and she was kind of nervous, and she didn't know what to do. And then she found out that she could go and sniff on whatever she wanted to sniff on as long as she wants to, and that I'm going to keep going, and she can catch up. And, and after a while, uh, when we were turned around to come back, uh, she couldn't take it any longer. And she just went, she just went running <laughs> as fast as she could in circles and just jumping and hopping and overjoyed, happy. Well, the Lord says we ought to be happy, excited. When we are spoken evil against and persecuted for his namesake, be exceedingly glad, jump for joy, great joy. The idea is extremely joyful. It's a kind of joy that you can't fake. When we heard news this week uh, that Rebecca had her baby, uh, she had a little 10-pound girl. Her name is Eleanor. Uh, there was joy in Susie's face that she couldn't fake, didn't want to fake. And so he says there, would be because of your reward. That word reward can mean wages, but it doesn't really mean wages here because it has the idea that that uh, that uh, the Lord is rewarding us beyond. It's not like because I did this and this and this that the Lord needs to reward me. No, it's a reward in which God gives to those who faithfully serve Him. And it's not a compensation for work done, but rather a gift which exceeds the services done. God is not going to owe us anything. It's going to be way beyond. So they persecuted the prophets which were before you. It tells us that the prophets suffered. And so when he's talking here, about suffering, rejoice and be exceedingly glad. I want to give a little <coughs> illustration about um, what's very frustrating today when I teach and preach. I'm not going to be able to get excited because I'm going to my voice will be 
south. So uh, bear with me. But recently, uh, with those fires in Northern California, and they they were kind of concerned because they were getting over in where the giant sequoias are at. But that's a wonderful thing. Let me read you this. Growing in the lush grove of the western slope of the Sierra Nevadas, giant sequoia trees can stand up to 325 feet tall and live as long as 3,000 years. Daniel was telling me not long ago how that when he was young, he used to climb these spruce trees all the way to the top. Well, we'll put him on that 325-foot one and see how far he goes. But they're up to 3,000 years old. And fire helps the giant sequoias in many ways. The small green cones full of seeds awaiting germination grow near the crown of the trees, and yet without a fire or insects to crack open the cone, the seeds remain trapped inside. Green cones can live with viable seeds inside them for up to 20 years. Fire dries out the cones and leaves them to crack open and deposit their seeds on the forest floor. So what happens is those, those big trees grow up and then underneath them, all these other plant life begins to grow. And you know, over the years, the leaves and falling and, and the ground's kind of covered up and it's all a whole bunch of, of different shrubs are under, and even smaller trees are underneath there. But when the fire comes, it burns all that out. Before, if a seed would fall, it couldn't even get down to the ground. The ground is cool, and, and uh, the, the vegetation that's fallen off from the shrubbery won't allow the sequoia tree to penetrate the ground. But the fire burns all of that. It doesn't burn the sequoia down because it's a giant tree. It releases the cones, and the cones fall into, a, uh, into an ashen ground that's full of nutrients, the fire even breaks up the, the, the ground's hardness and it goes into a perfect place to, to germinate and become a little sequoia. Well, the Bible tells us that, that the fiery trials which try us uh, are beneficial. That God wants to do something. And so it's the fiery trials in which we grow. And so he's going to talk here about rejoicing and being exceedingly glad. Now, I want to take for granted this morning that you understand that he is saying here that we're suffering for his sake. He's not talking about the suffering that's caused by our own rebellion or our own stupidity. Those need to be confessed and repented of. But he's talking about those trials that come for being a Christian. Peter says, For what glory is it if when you have buffeted for your faults, you shall take it patiently? But if when you do well and suffer, you take it patiently. This is acceptable with God. And so we just want to pull some principles from this because I think I'm safe to say this morning that this lesson on suffering and trials are um, applicable to everybody. 
And God may bring trials in your life where it's not necessarily because you took a stand at work, but it's a trial. And the first thing that I think we should see is that God ordains trials. Get saved. God has a wonderful plan for your life. Well, he does have a wonderful plan in the future. But that doesn't remove us from trials. And there is great peace that comes when we're saved and a joy when we're born again. But there's going to be trials. Look over into 1 Peter. Remember that Peter, as the pastor of the first church in Jerusalem, is writing to a people who've been scattered abroad because of persecution. And so they've been driven out of Palestine, been driven out of Jerusalem, and they're suffering. And he says to them, in verse 6 of 1 Peter chapter 1, wherein you greatly rejoice, though now for a season, if need be, you're in heaviness, through manifold temptations, that the trial of your faith be much more precious than of gold that perisheth, though it be tried with fire, may be found into praise and honor and glory in the appearing of Jesus Christ. And so he tells us that, that trials are ordained. Philippians says, For unto you it is given in the behalf of Christ, not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for his sake. Philippians 1.29. Here we are in 1 Peter. Turn over to Chekhet's chapter in the 21st verse. For even hereunto were ye called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that we should follow in his steps. <coughs> that we've been left an example that would cause us to suffer. John says in 1633, These things have I spoken to you, that you might be, have peace. In the world you shall have tribulation. But be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. This life of suffering that we're living now, just because of our fallen nature, is not going to go on forever, because he's overcome the world. In Acts chapter 14, Paul was going back and confirming the churches, and it says in the 22nd verse, confirming the souls of the disciples and exhorting them to continue in the faith, and that we must, through much tribulation, enter into the kingdom of God. Not that tribulation pushes into the kingdom of God, but it's a part of the process that we're going to go through that before we go to heaven. And then Timothy says, Paul writes to Timothy and he says, Yea, yes, and all that will live godly in Christ shall suffer persecution. And so I look at that and I say, okay, what is there about this that should cause him to rejoice? Because when he says rejoice, there has to be, he's not just saying, you know, manufacture this up with no reason or rhyme or reason why, but there's got to be something about suffering that should cause us to leap like a lamb. There's, a, there's something on the other side of this that we're not seeing. And when, you know, when people talk bad about me or, 
You know, and the wording here, that when everyone speaks evil against you and it's false, you know, uh, coming from, well, wherever, you could, you, I'm sure you can relate to this too, but I come from Eastern Oregon, and that is definitely redneck country. And when you get hit, you just hit back harder. <laughs> but that's not in God's economy. And so, <clears throat> why should I rejoice? Well, <clears throat> why? I can rejoice, letter A, I can rejoice because God is in control. Look back again in First Peter chapter four and verse twelve. Beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you as though some strange thing happened unto you. When we get into situations and we're being tried, we say, I don't know why this is happening. This is so strange and weird. But rejoice. Inasmuch as you are partakers of Christ's suffering, that when his glory shall be revealed, you may be glad also with exceeding joy. And so... The very first thing we need to understand is that when we're going through trials and they're not ones that are manufactured by ourselves, but we're going through hard times, that God has allowed it. Is God in control or not? Whether it's physically, emotionally, Family problems. Is God in control or not? That's the question. And is God allowing this to happen or not? Remember Joseph. And remember how he didn't desire to be favored by his father, but he was. And he received the coat of many colors. His brothers were jealous. They were talking about killing him, and they thought when this caravan came through going towards Egypt, you know, why should we kill him when we can make some money off of him? And so they sold him into Egypt. And God takes him into Egypt. He's falsely accused and thrown into prison. But through it all, God is working in his life and uh, putting him to where he's going to be Second in command in Egypt. Now I guarantee you it wouldn't have happened if Joseph would have went over there when he's in prison and sat down and said, God hates me. Why is this happening? How come I'm here? This is unjust. I hate you, God. 
No, he said God had a purpose. And when he revealed himself to his brothers after they came down and he was sustaining their lives, when he revealed himself to his brothers, he said this. But as for you, you thought evil against me, but God meant it unto good to bring it to pass as it is this day to save much people alive. If we can get by this first one, we, we're on the right road. But God allows things to happen. And when what I haven't really wrapped uh, into this lesson, but Romans 8.28 says this, all things, even those things that we've caused ourselves to suffer, all things work together for good to those that love God. <laughs> They're called according to his purpose. If we, if, we, if we somehow believe that we fell in the wrong circumstances, we're born in the wrong time, we got in with the wrong crowd, <coughs> and somehow we begin to believe that God doesn't have anything to do with this and God can't have his fingers upon it, then uh, we are going to be worthless. But God's in control. That God can work for good. And that God has a purpose. And so, rejoice. Rejoice. What, you know, what's going on? What's going on, Pastor? How come these things are happening in my life? Well, God's trying to do something. And you need to cooperate. Secondly, I need to rejoice because um, suffering takes away my self-sufficiency. When I was a young preacher, there was a little, little tiny church that only had a couple of families in it, and and the, one of the main men was dying of cancer, and they wanted me to come over and preach for them. I was green as could be, and uh, when I got there, there were two women, and. Uh, this lesson, I may chase too many rabbits. We'll see. There were two women that were the only two women there. And uh, believe it or not, I, I know how to play the piano a little bit. <laughs> if you knew the songs well, I could play the piano a little better. And so uh, I had to play the piano, lead the singing while I was playing the piano. I did the praying because... Uh, we didn't call on women to pray. I did the praying. I did the preaching. And in the end, they wanted to pay me some money, 20 bucks or something. It was a long time ago. 20 bucks was a good amount of money. I didn't want it. I don't need your money. I can take care of myself. 
And then I went off to Bible college. And uh, usually I'd come home every summer from Bible college and work, have enough money to pay my tuition and live on and go to school. But I went to summer school that year and I didn't make any money except for I was able to work for like one month. And I went back to college and I come to a place where I was uh, down to five bucks in my billfold. And uh, I wasn't able to take care of myself. And I was pretty discouraged. And I went to this church and I made up my mind between uh, services on Sunday night. They had kind of a teaching time and then a preaching time. And, and I made up my mind that between the teaching time and the preaching time, I was going to go home. I was going to pack my stuff, and I was going back to Oregon on five bucks. <laughs> you don't even think straight. And then uh, I thought, you know, if I get up and leave, because I was living with two other um, preacher boys, and if I get up and leave between that, they're going to ask me, what happened? What are you doing? You know, and I'd get the, get the interrogation. So I thought, well, I'll just save face and I'll stay here. Well, uh, the, the preacher preached the message, and God tore me up. And he said, listen, buddy, you can't take care of yourself. I'll take care of you. And I remember going forward and praying. I don't know what I said except basically, Lord, I'll trust you. And the next day, when I got back from school, I think I've told you this story before, I had two checks in the mail for over 150 bucks. I sat down and made myself a sandwich, and before I finished the sandwich, I got this phone call. It was from a company where I'd applied for a job over a month before, and they said, we'd like to hire you. And I said, well, where do you want me to go to work? They said, in an hour. <laughs> and the Lord took care of me. Trials take away our self-sufficiency. Trust in the Lord with all thine heart and lean not to an honest study. Acknowledge him in all thy ways and he'll direct thy path. The quicker we come to the understanding that we're bought with a price and the quicker that we come to an understanding that we cannot take care of ourselves. That... Uh, he provides for us. Paul said, But by the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace was bestowed upon me was not in vain, but I labored the more abundantly than they all, yet not I, but Christ, the grace of God, which was with me. And the Bible says, Without him we can do nothing. And so it takes away my self-sufficiency. And that's not a bad thing, but that is a humbling thing. See, trials, trials mature me.
Go back over there to 1 Peter. 1 Peter 1 and verse 6, we see there that says, Wherein you greatly rejoice, though now for a season, if need be, you're in heaviness through manifold temptations. The trials are necessary. Which would you rather follow? A first or a second lieutenant that just made the field straight out of West Point? Or a sergeant who had been two years in the conflict? Maturity. Pastor, what young people come or come to a pastor and they say, Pastor, what's going on? Why is this happening? Well, God's just trying to grow you up. When you read all about David and what he went through before he became king, it's just amazing what's happening. And what was God doing? He was making a king. It says there's need be, trials of need be. And then go over to chapter 5 and verse 10. But the God of all grace, who hath called us into his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after ye have suffered a while, make you perfect. That has the idea not sinless, but it's, it's like tuning up something, getting it to a place that it functions the very best. Establish. Set firm. Make firm. Strengthen. The idea that we can bear up under it and settle you. Put it on sure ground. We just need to be settled down sometimes. And trials do that, so I'm excited. <laughs> you know, why is this happening? Well, I'm, I'm going to try to grow through it. Maturity. And let me say to you, at 72, I've not arrived. And there's still maturation is coming. In fact, let me tell you this in a shameful way. A lot of times, the older you become as a Christian, the more your pride gets in the way. And you need to kill that. And then, D, trials for the Lord, trials if we cooperate, trials always work. They always work for good. Look over in uh, look over in uh, Romans chapter five. Romans chapter five.
Verse 2 says that we stand in his glory. And then he says, and not only so, verse 3, but we glory in tribulations. Rejoicing, glory. Also knowing that tribulations worketh patience. Patience here doesn't necessarily mean that I'm putting up with it, but it has the idea of endurance. And patience, experience. That you've been through it, been there, done that. I've experienced some things. I've experienced what God does. And experience hope. I remember, I remember this happened here. Uh, and in the Old Testament, you know, they raised their Ebenezer and said, Hitherto hath the Lord helped us. And I can say, The Lord helped me here. I've experienced that here, and he will help me now today. Experience hope. And hope maketh not ashamed. Because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost, which is given to us. That trials were working. Tribulation, and I had endurance, patience, and experience, and hope. And I can stand before men and say, listen, I'm not ashamed of being a child of God. He's always been there. He's always helped. He's always taken over. And then... E, trials draw me closer to God. Look over there in the book of Acts. Chapter 9 and verse 3. And as he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly there shined around about him a light from heaven. This is Saul of Tarsus. And he fell to the earth and heard a voice saying unto him, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? And he said, Who art thou, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom thou persecutest. Is it hard for thee to kick against the pricks? And he trembling and astonished said, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? And the Lord said unto him, Arise and go to the city, and it shall be told thee what thou must do. But I want you to see twice here, in verse 4, he said, Why persecutest thou me? And then he says, in the middle of verse 5, I am Jesus whom thou persecutest. Listen, 
Jesus is in the presence of God the Father. Jesus, Jesus wasn't dwelling on the earth. But Jesus says, why are you persecuting me? And here's what I want you to understand. When they speak all manner of evil against you, Jesus Christ takes it personal. When people mock me, and people do me wrong, and people do you wrong, that Jesus takes it personal. And then look over to kind of go with this in Philippians chapter 3, and, and I didn't really understand this until I came to this understanding, and, and, and this verse made me much more than what I even grasp of today. But Philippians chapter 3 and verse 10, Paul was praying, and he said that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. And I said, how can I fellowship with what he went through on the cross? Well, I can't. But I fellowship with him when I am being persecuted, he's right there with me. And I'm telling you, there, cannot, there is no sweeter time with the Lord than to know that maybe everybody else has turned. He's right there. And it causes me to want to leap like the lamb. It causes me to rejoice and be exceedingly glad because I am experiencing something as close to heaven as I can ever be in this life. There's something about suffering for the sake of Christ and Him being there with me that's... uh, Truly glorious. In those times, as 2 Corinthians tells me, I find that his grace is sufficient. It's those times that I find, as it says in 1 Peter, that I can cast all my care upon him because he cares for me. It's at those times, as it says in 1 Peter, that our reproach becomes his reproach and we glory in his receiving glory in the fellowship of his suffering. Paul said, Blessed be God, even the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercy and the God of all comfort, who comforted us in all of our tribulation that we may be able to comfort them which are in any trouble by the comfort wherein ourselves are comforted of God. And then he says here in our text, for great is your reward in heaven. One of the things I want you to see there is that he, 
He didn't say, great will your reward be in heaven, but he says, great is your reward. And it's not like a waiting for a pie in the sky. It's reward. It's a present tense. And I don't claim to know all that. But I think all of these things are involved in that. And there's another thing I want you to see in Romans chapter 8. In Romans chapter 8. Okay, I got five minutes. Romans chapter 8. And verse 28, a verse that we mentioned earlier. It says, and we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. I don't think those two thoughts are not connected. They are connected. And part of being conformed to the image of his son is this thing of all things working together. That trials conform me to the image of Christ. And if I should rejoice about anything and be happy, is that when people see me, that they see Christ living in me. The songwriter said, Oh, to be like thee, oh, to be like thee, Blessed Redeemer, pure as thou art, come in thy sweetness, come in thy fullness, stamp thine own image deep in my heart. Oh, to be like thee, this is my constant longing and prayer. Gladly I'll forfeit all earth's treasures, Jesus thy perfect likeness to wear. Amy Carmichael was a woman who, a Christian lady who, aided abandoned children in India and uh, schooled them and gave them housing and clothing. And she wrote this. One day we took the children to see a goldsmith refine gold in the ancient manner of the East. He was sitting beside his little charcoal fire. He shall sit as a refiner, Malachi says, 3.3. The gold or silversmith never leaves his crucible once it's on the fire. In the red glow lay a common curved roof tile. Another tile covered it like a lid. This was the crucible. And in it was the medicine. The medicine would be the material used to burn off the dross, the impurities. It is made of salt and tamarind and fruit and burnt brick dust and Embedded in it was the gold. And the medicine does its appointed work on the gold. Then the fire eats it, and the goldsmith lifts the gold out with a pair of tongs and lets it cool. And he rubs it between his fingers after it's cooled. And if he's not satisfied, he puts it back again with fresh medicine. This time he blows the fire hotter than it was before. And each time he puts the gold into the crucible and heats the fire, it is increased. It would not bear it so hot at the first, but it can bear it now. And what would have destroyed it then helps it now. 
How do you know when the gold is purified? We asked him, and he answered, When I can see my face in it, then it's pure. And as this goldsmith never leaves the crucible when it's in the fire, and he knows that it's where it needs to be when he can see his face in it, so it is with us. Understand when you're going through trials and you feel like you're in a crucible, the he who's refining you has never left. And what he wants to do is to see your face in the fire. And so now we come to the crisis, rejoicing in trials. Every command brings us to a crisis. Should we do it? Do I feel like doing it? When he's simply saying, this is what I'm commanding you to do. And so it's not about how we feel. But it's a choice that I'm not going to be bitter, but I'm going to be made better. But know for surety that this matter of rejoicing is not within your ability. We're going to need the Lord's help. And I want to give you a little illustration, a little story, of, a true story, that has to do more with forgiving, but it can apply to rejoicing. Corey Ten Boom was a, a Dutch lady whose family living in Holland, shielded Jews from the Nazis in World War II. And the Nazis discovered that uh, they were shielding Jews, and they arrested Corey and her sister and her father, and they put them into Ravenbook concentration camp where Betsy and her father died. And after the war, uh, Corey went back to Holland and she helped people try to get them on their feet who uh, had been destroyed and their lives upended during the Nazi invasion. And she encouraged them, if we're going to get over this, we need to forgive. And she went into Germany giving lectures on the same subject. The German people had been defeated. When the world found out what the Germans were doing, and actually some Germans found out what they were doing, there was great shame. It was in a church in Munich that I saw him a balding, heavy-set man in a gray overcoat, a brown felt hat clutched between his hands. People were filing out of the basement room where I had just spoken, moving along the rows of wooden chairs to the door at the rear. It was 1947, and I had come from Holland to defeated Germany with the message that God forgives. It was the truth they needed most to hear in that bitter, bombed-out land. And I gave them my favorite mental picture, Maybe because the seas 
is never far from the Hollander's mind. I like to think that that's where I like to think that that's where forgiven that's where forgiven sins were thrown. When we confess our sins, I said, God cast them into the deepest ocean, gone forever. The solemn faces stared back at me, not quite daring to believe. There were never questions after a talk in Germany in 1947. People stood up in silence, and in silence collected their wraps, and in silence left the room. And that's when I saw him working his way forward against the others. One moment I saw the overcoat and the brown hat, and the next, in my mind's eye, a blue uniform, a visored cap with its skull and crossbones. It came back with a rush, the huge room with its harsh overhead lights, the pathetic pile of dresses and shoes in the center of the room, the shame of walking naked past this man. I could see my sister's frail form ahead of me, ribs sharp beneath the parchment skin. Betsy, how thin you are. Betsy and I had been arrested by concealing Jews for concealing Jews in our home during the Nazi occupation of Holland. This man had been a guard at Ravensbrück concentration camp where we were sent. Now he was in front of me, hand thrust out. A fine message, Fraulein. How good it is to know that as you say, our sins are at the bottom of the sea. And I, who had spoken so glibly of forgiveness, fumbled in my pocketbook rather than take that hand. He would not remember me. Of course, how could he remember one prisoner among those thousands of women? But I remember him and the leather crop swinging from his belt. It was the first time since my release that I had been face to face with one of my captors and my blood seemed to freeze. You mentioned Ravensbrook in your talk, he was saying. I was a guard there. No, he did not remember me. But since that time he went on, I have become a Christian. I know that God has forgiven me for the cruel thing. But I would like to hear it from your lips as well, Fraulein. Again, the hand came out. Will you forgive me? And I stood there. I, whose sins had every day to be forgiven. And could not. Betsy had died in that place. Could he erase her slow, terrible death simply for the asking? It could not have been many seconds that he stood there, hand held out, but to me it seemed hours as I wrestled with the most difficult thing I ever had to do. For I had to do it, I knew that. The message that God forgives has a has a prior condition that we forgive those who have injured us. If you do not forgive men their trespasses, Jesus says, neither will your Father in heaven forgive your trespasses. I knew it not only as a commandment of God, but as a daily experience since the end of the war. I had a home in Holland for victims of Nazi brutality. Those who were able to forgive their former enemies were able also to return to the outside world and rebuild their lives, no matter what the physical scars. And those who nursed their bitterness remained invalids. And as horrible as that. And still I stood there with a coldness clutching my heart, but forgiveness is not an emotion. I knew that too. Forgiveness is an act of the will, 
and the will can function regardless of the temperature of the heart. Jesus, help me, I prayed silently. I can lift my hand. I can do that much. You supply the feeling. And so woodenly, mechanically, I thrust my hand into the one stretched out to me. And as I did, an incredible thing took place. The current started in my shoulder, raced down my arm, sprang into my joined hands, and then this healing warmth seemed to flood my whole being, bringing tears to my eyes. I forgive you, brother, I cried with all my heart. Now here's the deal. When people are treating us nasty, I mean nasty. And when you're lying about you, and you don't get the raise at your work when all others do because you stand against abortion, when they know that you're a Christian, you're not promoted because you're not going to work on Sunday. How can I rejoice in that? Well, I can't rejoice in that any more than she could forgive that Nazi guard at Ravensbrück. But God will enable you to. And he'll help you to do that. And you see, as she said there, the people that she was dealing with in Holland, the ones who forgave, their life went on. But the ones who didn't was invalids the rest of their life. If we don't learn to rejoice in suffering, we're going to be hobbled the rest of our life. Either real things or imagined things have been done to all of us. And let me tell you what you can do. You can hang on to that. And you can say, I'm not going to forgive them. I'm never going to trust them again. I'm never going to open my heart up to them again. I'm not going to be vulnerable again. And it's going to make you an invalid spiritually. It'll make you bitter. But we need to rejoice. And God will give us the ability to do that. There is a crisis moment. And... Uh, as I said, uh, I have to study these lessons and teach these lessons, and I'm going to have to obey the commands that our king has given to us, and so will you. But God will enable you to do what he asks you to do, okay? And so, don't think it's strange when fiery trials come. But rejoice. Why? Because God's still in control. Because he's taken away my self-sufficiency. And when I can be sufficient in him, then I'm all the sufficiency I want. It's going to grow me. The trials of our faith work. Patience, patience, experience, patience, hope. And it draws me closer to God where I say, Lord, if you don't help me, this thing's done. But he does help me. And he will help you.